passage on which the teaching will be based this morning comes from Isaiah chapter 9. I would encourage you to follow along with us. I think that in your pew Bibles, if you don't have a Bible, at um, page 573. So open up with me, if you will. <clears throat> Isaiah chapter 9. This is God's word to us. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire." For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. So I wonder how many of you have a Thomas Kincaid painting uh, somewhere in your house. Kincaid became famous as the, uh, the painter of light, nickname that he gave himself. Well, Kincaid was originally from California, and in the mid-80s, he began experimenting with paintings of light. And his work consists of these very idyllic scenes and pastoral life with uh, light pastels, radiating highlights. Pictures were all like glowing main streets and mountain streams and stone cottages, all which seemed to have a light within that was shining. Well, Kincaid, you may not know, was a very public Christian. He was also quoted, often quoted as someone who explicitly wanted to include very uplifting and inspirational messages in his painting, oftentimes including a little Bible verse in the caption. He would say that he wanted to capture people's imagination, to long for a place of simplicity and so his viewers could have an emotional experience that took them away from the cares of the world. But of course, Kincaid was not without his critics. He was criticized almost from the very beginning of his ascendancy in the art world for just being too schmaltzy. One author called him the, uh, the kitsch master, <laughs> and they claimed that his work was garish, it was overly sentimental. They hated what appeared to them as a rank commercialization of art on the scale in which he was selling. And for some, it was just exactly the kind of art that they hated. <laughs> I found one online critic who put it this way. He said, to Kincaid's detractors, he represents the triumph of sub-mediocrity and the commercialization and homogenization of painting. Kincaid's detractors also dislike him because his work is terrible. A Malden, sickeningly sentimental vision of a world where everything is as soothing as a warm cup of hot chocolate with marshmallows on a cold December day. Never mind why that's so bad. I'm, sounds kind of nice to me. What's he saying? He's saying Kincaid's not real enough. You know, he's not acquainted with grief. He's not looking at life in the way in which it really is. Escapism, that's for cowards. The world is broken, and art that refuses to depict that is really substandard. I find that so interesting, because I think that we could actually hold up a Kincaid painting here this morning and survey the crowd, and I bet you we would find out a little bit about how you apprehend the world around you. 
mean, think about this. For some of you, you hold very desperately on to the idea that the world could and should have light streaking through it with hopes for better times and warmer feelings. But for others of you, the darkness took over a long time ago. You have a very deep-rooted cynicism that this summer we refer to as being identified by one singular word, the word whatever. Life's going to the pot at the end, so why care? Life is dark and there's nothing that you can do about it. And so when we come along to Christmas season, it's almost as if we see both of these people interacting with Christmas. But we have to ask, which is it? Is Christmas warm pastels and soothing fireside chats? Or is it yet another example that your life is not what it was supposed to be and everybody else seems to be experiencing a joy that I'll never have? Well, this morning, I want to come to grips with how a Christian should feel about the season. I mean, really, what is the right way to celebrate the Christmas season? And in my experience, how you survive or thrive during the holiday says a lot about your disposition in life. I'll also say that this is a sermon that I actually preached five years ago. I'm sure all of you remember it. You can hear it, right? But I've changed in five years, and I changed the entire ending of this sermon. So bear with me as we review some of this, because we have a passage in Isaiah that shows us Isaiah delivering judgment on the tyrannical reign of King Ahaz, an evil, godless king who cruelly oppressed the nation of Israel. But Isaiah delivers a prophecy that not only takes it into perspective, but he gives hope to the people that are suffering. Because I think actually this morning, the Bible takes both of our reactions very seriously to Christmas. On the one hand, the Bible is not a Pollyanna, cross your fingers, hope things will get better religion. Quite the contrary. It's a very profoundly realistic religion. But at the same time, it shows us that one of the reasons why we feel sentimental in this season in the first place is because there actually is hope on the horizon. So three points to unpack this, this, these passages in Isaiah chapter 9. We want to look at the light, we want to look at the freedom, and then look at the hope at the end. Let's take that first one. The first prediction that Isaiah makes is that there is a light that is coming. Look at verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, and those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them light has shone. That's a very Hebrew way of, of doing uh, verses there in that little couplet. But what it's saying is, is that the coming Messiah was to be an inbreaking of light from the outside, which was incredibly good news for these people as they heard it. Verse 3 says that there's a joy that comes from seeing this light, and it's kind of like the joy you feel when you bring a harvest in. Now look, we don't live in an agrarian society, of course, like these people who would have read this originally, but you can, it's not too much of a stretch to realize that when the harvest came in, it was a time of excess. It was great. You saw the fruit of your labor. You ate probably to overfulness. You invited others to come in and divide the spoil, which ought to sound familiar. I realize that it's very spiritually trendy to decry the commercialization of Christmas among you know, super Christians. But, but gift giving during this season is itself supposed to be a figure of an anticipation of joy. That's what the look in our children's eyes is about on Christmas morning. It's a, it's a metaphor for what Jesus wants to bring when he comes to set all things right. Now, why would a coming salvation, though, be associated with light be such a big deal? Well, simply stated, because according to Isaiah, we are all in darkness. 
Look back up at verse 1. We didn't read it here, but it says there that there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. Interesting, that word gloom that you have translated there in other places throughout the Old Testament is usually translated darkness. And I find it very interesting that the Bible, again, this, is, this occurs to me every time I get through the Psalms, the Bible is amazingly emotionally sophisticated when they begin to look at how it is that we feel. Isaiah understands a diagnosis, not just an individual depression, but a depression that's taken over an entire culture, a society's essence. Because when oppression and injustice overtakes a people, the Bible comes along and says, this is depressing. <laughs> it's like being in darkness. So no, the Bible is not an escapist religion. It takes your inner gloom seriously enough to acknowledge it and talk about it. That's one of the most crushing things about seasonal gloom, is it not? To see how isolating it is, how alone it makes us feel. You don't want to tell anybody about it because you're afraid of bringing everybody down. But the Bible gets you on a deep level and promises you that in the midst of your darkness, there's a shaft of light that breaks through. Reminded me of a story uh, from 1962 of a French geologist by the name of um, Michael Sifra who holed himself into an underground glacier that he had discovered uh, near Nice for about two months. Well, during those two months, he had no access to clocks uh, or to calendars or to sunlight at all, and no visits from the world above. Rather, Seifer decided to let his body dictate his behavior. Kept a written record of his activities, and he would telephone the team on the outside every time he woke up and ate and just before he slept. Although the people on the top side would never tell him exactly what time it was. Well, when his colleagues called him to say that his two months was up, Sefer could hardly believe it. He was convinced that actually only one month had passed. In other words, his very psychological perception of time had gotten distorted by this constant darkness he was living in. The doctors went on to discover that even our bodies need light to know how to monitor our own internal rhythms, our own cell growth. And there's a wonderful cultural an analogy here because what Isaiah is sort of hinting at is, is that when darkness takes over a culture, you'll know it because everything gets disoriented. Even our perception of time gets twisted. That's the reason why we talk about our days dragging on, as we say. Our perception of ourselves gets messed up. We either give ourselves way too much of the benefit of the doubt on the one hand, or, you know, we destroy ourselves with self-hatred. We never get that right. But my point is, is that Christmas sentimentality in many ways can be understood as a longing for light, for things to make sense again, to see things as they really are, and not through the lens of our own sin-distorted lives. So yes, there's a light that's coming, first of all. Secondly, though, we find that there's also a promise that Isaiah makes of freedom. Look at verse 4. He starts talking about symbols for a people that are in bondage. For the yoke of his burden, the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Take the first section first. You get these interesting words, yoke, staff, rod. Those are all ways of describing what the faithless Israelites felt during their sort of era of this, their national life. They're symbols of oppression. They're symbols of fear, symbols of burden. And the prophet is saying that it is God's intention to establish freedom for you, which is very interesting. You know, we live in a world where everybody feels victimized these days. 
everybody. It's almost trendy to be and feel victimized in our world. But see, that's a big problem we're noticing because most psychologists say the more that you feel oppressed and victimized, the more that you will become someone who victimizes others. Maybe that's why we're at each other's throats on social media daily. But God sees this and he speaks into it because oppression and bondage are really bad for the collective peace of a society. And Isaiah is promising that there is coming a day when that's going to all be over. All of the tools you use, verse 5 says, to wage this war on each other are going to be burned. Look at verse 5. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire, he says. In other words, they'll be done away with all that. All of the tools of destruction are going to be done away with. So that by the end of verse 4, he says, things are going to be like they were in the day of Midian. Ooh, that's really interesting. And you got to do a little bit of digging to understand exactly what Isaiah is talking about here. Because do you remember the story of Israel's conquering of Midian? Go back and read about it. It's a fascinating story from um, Judges 6 and 7. That is, this budding Israeli nation was threatened by this massive Midian army. And so God calls a judge uh, by the name of Gideon to take that army on. But through this really bizarre and kind of fascinating process of uh, military downsizing, you might call it, uh, he ends up with only 300 soldiers to fight this entire army with, right? But now if you remember the story, in the end, what God does is, is he turns the Midian army in on itself in confusion and panic. And the enemy ends up killing each other and achieving a victory in that way. And I think Isaiah is saying, that is vintage Yahweh. Vintage. Why? Because so often in the Old Testament, what you find in God's prediction about the way terrible things in our culture are going to go is the way he's going to allow that to go is he's going to end the oppression by making the injustice eat its own tail. This is the deal. It's important for you to realize this. The judgment that typically befalls oppression and injustice in our world is not the way we oftentimes want it. You know, some big dramatic display of, uh, of explosive retribution. Find ourselves praying that God would, you know, strike somebody with a bolt of lightning or maybe they would drop dead of a heart attack or something like that. It's not the way it happens in the Old Testament. More times than not, what God decides to do with evil in the world is he simply withdraws his protective hand, withdraws his protective hand from it, and he allows the evil to run its full course. And because the sin that drives our rebellion and causes us to sort of take hand in hurting the vulnerable around us or refusing to speak out against it when we see it, it ends up containing the seeds of its own downfall inside itself. This is huge here because there's an argument to be made that this is what always happens in oppressive systems. Always. Evil eats its own tail. Best illustration I could come up with comes from the Nixon administration as he dates himself in front of his uh, own congregation. But there's this very poignant moment, for those of you who have no memory, cultural memory of Richard Nixon as president of the United States, where the president stands up on the day of his resignation. He had resigned the night before. He gets up the next day to address the entirety of the White House staff. Okay? And he delivers this really astounding speech. Now, mind you, this is a man who had just in those last few months been exposed as overseeing and approving of a highly illegal cover-up 
of some, you know, obviously little, little, more than just a little bit questionable activities that had come out of his reelection campaign, something that you and I now refer to as Watergate. Okay, so Nixon was known to be very paranoid about what it was that people thought about him, and so he set out to get dirt on his political enemies. Um, but for those of us who are old enough to remember, you'll remember that it all backfired on him. He was caught in his plans and exposed in so many ways and, and really disgraced for his pettiness. Well, during this address to his staff, think about this. He's got all of his, his White House staff in the same room uh, on his last day as president. He finishes his speech with this phrase. He says, always give your best, never get discouraged, never be petty. Always remember, others may hate you, but those who hate you won't win unless you hate them. And then you destroy yourself. It's a crazy powerful moment. And it was hard not to believe that Nixon himself was coming to grips with his own behavior by fearing the opinions of people so much in that incredible moment. And yes, God is going, we believe, to bring destruction and deliverance over the oppressors of Israel. But more than likely, it's going to come from their own self-destruction, which is deeply ironic, isn't it? The powerful will be brought down by their own power. The arrogant will be destroyed by their arrogance. The violent will be destroyed by their own violence. But in the end, it's going to come out for freedom for God's people. That's what it's going to end up being for us. So two things, obviously, light and freedom. Thirdly, though, we get to the real kicker, and that is that there is now hope that's being promised by Isaiah. Because what this all means is that there is a light that is dawning that's bringing freedom for God's people, and that means that we can have hope. It's a very interesting structure to this passage in Isaiah 9 because there are three uh, fours, F-O-R, that sort of compromise really the spine of the passage. The last four announces that there is a child that's going to be born who's going to save them all. Verse 6 says that he's the kind of child that is going to come and carry the entire government. Don't, don't over-spiritualize that because what he's saying there is, is that this message is not just going to be applied to individual human hearts. It's also going to have application throughout that culture, the very structures that sinful men build to help protect people. These structures, we find in verse 7, are going to change, and they're going to become places of peace, and places of justice, places of righteousness. In other words, there is hope that we can have because this person has been born to change it all. Now look, and then you get a list of names that he's going to be called, which of course is appropriately famous to our ears. But those last three names, you know, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, is clearly establishing the fact that this is not just going to be any normal baby that's born. Uh, no, nor is it going to be merely a human king, but it's actually going to be God incarnate who's going to come and dwell among us. He will be the light. He will be the bringer of freedom. But focus for just a second, for, just for interest's sake, on that very first title. Why does the author say that his name will be Wonderful Counselor? When you're thinking about a great and mighty king, is the first thing that you think about be like, you know what, I think he's going to be a really wonderful counselor. We don't typically think about that. This is where Tim Keller kind of swoops in in his wonderful little Christmas book he wrote about this very passage when he says, why is Jesus to be called counselor? Well, when you're going through something very difficult, it's good to talk to someone who has walked the same path, who knows personally what you have been going through. 
If God really has been born in a manger, then we have something that no other religion even claims to have. It is a God who truly understands from the inside of your experience. There is no other religion that says God has suffered, that God had to be courageous, that he knows what it's like to be abandoned by his friends, to be crushed by injustice, to be tortured, and to die. Christmas shows that Jesus knows what you are going through. And when we talk to him, he understands. Now, why is that such a big deal? Because if someone is going to enter in and save us, they have to relate. They have to understand. They have to have a moment where they see the world through our eyes. That's what Christmas is about. And only in Christianity do you have a religion that posits a God who enters into his creature situation. He doesn't stand aloof. (laughs) He's not far off. He's near. He's intimate. He's personal. He's close by. And it's that very nugget that makes Isaiah say that for that reason we can have hope. I used to struggle with that word. I did a lot of work on it this summer, by the way, trying to wrestle with that word hope. And I've come to realize that one of the reasons why hope is difficult for us to understand is because in, in the last who knows how long, we've taken the word hope to sort of attach some I don't know, cultural accretions, if you will, to that word that make it steer us away from what the Bible actually means by it. Because you and I, when we hear the word hope, we tend to think about uncertainty, don't we? Uh, you know, we hope, fingers crossed, that we'll get the Christmas bonus this year. We, we hope, you know, fingers crossed, that next year we'll be better than the last and the Rebels will win a national championship in the fall. <laughs> but what are you fixated on this, this Christmas, right? But that's not the Bible's word for hope. Hope in the biblical parlance means a certainty, a certainty of conviction about something. Now you see why Isaiah's prophecy was so electrifying to his first listeners. Because hope is simply this. You know what hope is? Hope is just knowing that you've got something that you look forward to. Have you ever thought about how your calendar works during a year? When you've got like a super fun vacation on your calendar, doesn't that help today? (laughs) Or think about when you don't when there's really nothing to look forward to, when you've got joy in your horizon, it makes today bearable, doesn't it? Hmm. That's why Jesus is a wonderful counselor, because he knows he's been down your path, he survived it, he overcame it, so that when you follow him, you can have certainty, hope, that you've got good things ahead of you, that there's good ahead of you. All right, back to Thomas Kincaid for just a second. So this painter of light, as it was, you may not realize, finished this earthly voyage rather poorly. On Good Friday in 2012, Kincaid was found dead in his home. In his system were a deadly mix of alcohol and Valium. He had OD'd, overdosed. He was divorced from his wife a few months prior, although he was seeing a new girlfriend. But after his death, the next years became marked with just his fortune being fought over by his friends and family who wanted a piece of his excess. And it becomes really in the ending an incredibly depressing story. That is, the darkness came in and just overtook him. But here's the simple point I want to suggest you this morning. What if that glowing sort of warm light in Kincaid's paintings are so beloved because that's what people are looking for? Is that what people are looking for every time you walk into a house that is decked out in twinkle lights and you just have to stop and look at it? You load your kids up in the car just so you can drive around and see what kind of light shows people have put in front of their houses. 
It happens every time you drive through the square on a quiet night and it's, it's, it's lit up like a Christmas tree. It can be mesmerizing. What if all of that mystery and that longing for light is just a memory trace? A memory trace in your soul. A knowledge somewhere that you were created to know the real light of the world. That the real shaft of hope and rescue that you were built for has to be there. And what if all the feelings of Christmas sentimentality and nostalgia are pointing to that? That we were built for something that we intuitively know we don't have, at least by our own accord. Because here's the dealio. <laughs> I'm ready to make this announcement. Because again, when I finished this, uh, this sermon five years ago, I ended it at that point with the Kincaid suicide or the Kincaid death, as depressing as it was. And just asked people kind of, where do you find yourself? But I think I've come to, I've come to a conviction on something, a hope. Because I asked you at the beginning, where do you fall? Sentimental or cynic? Uh, sappy or disillusioned? What kind of person are you? And while I do believe that what Isaiah is hinting at is that both of those excesses are wrong-headed, I've actually come to believe that I think the sentimental are a little closer to the truth. A little bit closer to the truth. Why? Because we have a Bible here that is talking about God's dealings with his people and the coming of a child that's going to be born that will realize that hope fully for his people and start a worldwide revolution that continues to this day. Why are we in the 21st century talking about a birth that happened 2,000 years ago in ancient Palestine? Because it's moving, it's going. But you know where it's going to? It's going to passages like Revelation 21 verse 5, where when God is talking about himself and what he's up to, he says this, he says, behold, I am making all things new. Let me ask you a question. What is Christmas about? Christmas is about it being new, isn't it? A new toy. I'm looking forward to a, a new car. I'm looking forward to a new year. Something new that'll happen. We long for the world to be new. It's what Christmas is all about. It's the restart button. And God is coming along in Revelation 21 and says, I am a God of newness. I am here to renew. I am here to make new. And that's why Christmas, I think, thrills us, because it hints that everything is being made new. No, Christianity is not some Pollyanna religion. Yes, it absolutely takes your pain deadly serious. But we can't end there. In the hope that is Christmas, there's a conviction that no matter how much darkness threatens to overtake us, there's something better coming. A Christian is one who always thinks that there is something better coming. It doesn't matter if the diagnosis is cancer. There's something better coming. It doesn't matter if she said that she's leaving you. There's something better coming. It doesn't matter that the pink slip just got delivered to your desk right in the middle of the holidays. There's something better coming. Why? Because the people who walk in darkness have seen a great light. And it showed up in the deepest of ironies in a feed trough in a peasant's home about 2,000 years ago. So that you and I this morning could remember the light and the freedom and the hope that is in Christmas. 
So yeah, number me among the sentimental this morning. I'll be okay with that. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, would you, again, in not a sappy way, but at least in a hopeful way, in a joyful way, in a way filled with light, in a way that has been loosened from the bonds of our sin and of our foolishness by your grace on the cross, would you lead us and walk us into that even this morning, that even in the midst of all of the buzz and the things and the frustrations that we go through during the season, we can see that in the end it all screams a happy ending for every single person that knows you in this room. So we pray very vividly that if there's someone in this room that does not know that you do, draw them to yourself, that they would talk, they would ask, they would look, they would search. You promise to all those people, if they seek you, they'll find you. So draw us all to yourself this morning. Would you do that in the light of this season? For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.